This episode is part two of two, so if you haven't listened to it already, go listen to episode 67 first. So, Rory, you've mentioned your other job, which is running something called, rather excellently, the Albatross Task Force, which sounds like people running around in SWAT gear, stopping people, hooking out albatrosses and and taking out the mice on the islands, the overgrown mice. But could you explain what it's actually about? Yeah, you're not a million miles from the truth, actually. (laughs) I think it's one of the coolest jobs out there. And when I first started working at the RSPB and heard about the Albatross Task Force, I was like, that is what I want to do. That is who I want to work with. And it took me, what, six or seven years to get there. But then I, I do work in that team now. So it was a bit of a fulfillment of a of a dream to come and work with the Albatross Task Force. Basically, the Albatross Task Force was set up in 2005. The first team was in South Africa. And it was basically established to address a gap in conservation practice, basically. So we'd known since the 1990s that albatrosses were being killed in quite large numbers in fisheries, particularly longline fisheries. So these are vessels with huge numbers of hooks that get paid out behind the vessel, you know, thousands and thousands of hooks on, you know, up to sort of anywhere between 20 and 60 kilometres, over 100 kilometres in some cases of line. So huge, huge lines from a single vessel to catch all sorts of different things. So in Antarctica, around Antarctica in particular, they're trying to catch something called Patagonian toothfish. Um, also known as Chilean sea bass and that's a very valuable fish that's sold in markets particularly in in North America it's worth a lot of money it's a very lucrative fishery and and those fisheries in very dangerous fishing grounds were were killing a lot of albatrosses so the uh, Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic and Marine Living Resources or CAMELAR as it's called decided to, to do something about it so they mandated a bunch of what's called mitigation measures bycatch mitigation measures so it's things like bird scaring lines so behind the vessel when these albatrosses are diving on the hooks there's baits on them they're trying to take the hooks take the baits off the hooks they get caught in the hooks and and drowned you want to try and scare them away from the back of the boat so you can use these really simple bird scaring lines sort of 150 meters long with lots of of bits of of pipe or or different materials hanging off them that wave around in the wind and scare the birds away from the, the danger area behind the boat the other thing that was developed was line weighting, so sinking, putting weights in the lines to sink them faster, because most albatrosses can only dive to about 10 metres maximum. So the faster you can get those hooks down, the less likely they are to, to get snared on a, on a hook uh, when they're trying to take the baits. And then the other thing you can do is set your lines at night. Uh, and in Antarctica, there's quite a lot of night in the winter time, so you can exploit that and focus the fishery uh, during the hours of darkness when there's fewer birds around. And those three measures were found to be incredibly effective. So in the Camelar area, they were able to reduce bycatch to zero in the early 2000s mm. uh, and, and late 90s. But those measures were not being implemented elsewhere. So they weren't being implemented in, implemented in other high seas areas. So all the tuna fisheries that were operating in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean and the, and the Pacific um, didn't have those measures in place. And... Within countries' exclusive economic zones, sort of out to 200 nautical miles from the coast of countries, they weren't being implemented either. Now, some countries were starting to do it, Australia and New Zealand being being a couple of, the, of those where it was relevant. You know, they're relatively far, far south, they've got fisheries that interact with albatrosses. 
it wasn't happening in, in other parts of the world where albatrosses were, were ending up caught in fisheries. So that included southern Africa, particularly around Namibia and South Africa, and also around South America, um, especially in the southern cone, Chile and, and Argentina, but up into Uruguay and Brazil, uh, at Peru and, and Ecuador as well on the, on the Pacific side. So the Albatross Task Force was set up to address this gap. Basically, these measures weren't being implemented because nobody was speaking to industry about the measures. There were no regulations in place requiring it. There was It just wasn't happening. So we got instructors on the ground in those countries working within a local partner. So it was always, we, we work in BirdLife as a, as a partnership and we've got local partners in um, over 120 countries, I think. And generally we'll be working directly with um, our partners in those countries to implement these measures. So go on the boats, demonstrate them, show them to the fishing industry, say this is how it works, this is what you need to do, um, get on the boats, make it happen. Spend a lot of time trying to just get on boats in the first place because in ports people are like, who's this weird bird person wanting to come on my vessel? Do I trust them? Why are they here? And then eventually uh, building enough trust and getting on there. And, and now fast forward multiple years, be in a space where in five of those countries uh, where we're still are active or close to active, South Africa, Namibia, um, Argentina, Chile and Brazil, we're recently not so active, but have, have up until recently, all of those countries have regulations now in the key fisheries which require vessels to use mitigation measures. And now we're in the process of training domestic observer programs and inspectors and in, in looking for those measures and making sure that vessels are using them. And that's what the teams are doing. So, yeah, it's great. It's gone all the way from like the very beginning, demonstrating these things on a handful of boats where people were allowed on board, all the way up to actually getting regulations in place and, and making sure that this stuff is happening in, in these fisheries. So... Yeah, I just have so much respect for the people doing the job, the instructors. Some of them have been there since almost the start. My colleague Leo in Argentina has been there for years. And um, yeah, they've, they've seen that full cycle pass. So yeah, I, I'm just really inspired by them. So uh, me, I am just the boring project manager guy. I help find funding to support their work and help troubleshoot issues and sit in front of spreadsheets and do budgets they and write reports they do the important on the ground delivery difficult conversations making stuff happen work and yeah i love them all <laughs> yeah it's because i have heard of all the hook pod and the, all that stuff it was it made mainstream news for a while didn't it? a lot of that stuff before various things have been happening recently <laughs> let's not go into that yeah indeed i i first came across it actually through bird photographer of the year Really? first came across it through that because I think it's one of the, the projects that they were supporting through Bird Photographer for the Year with the donations and that. So that's how I first came came across it and actually heard about it. So. Yeah, and ba- I mean, back when it was launched, it was like a big campaign with a lot of, you know, names behind it. Yeah, it was a big deal. You know, when we realised that 19, at the time there was, now there's 22 species of albatross back then, I think it was 21, and 19 of the 21 species of albatross were threatened with extinction. It's now 15 of the 22. So things are moving in the right direction, but Bycatching fisheries is still the major reason that birds are being killed and a, a big focus for us in the next 10 years. Still working in some of those fisheries and, and the countries that I mentioned, but a big focus is really on the high seas and uh, the high seas tuna fleets because there's far less observer coverage in the high seas, less than 5%. So most fishing trips happening out there don't have anyone on board to check these measures are being used and, and the risks are, are pretty massive for albatrosses. Oh, that's all interesting stuff, excellent. So Chantal, can you tell us about the Great Northwood Project? I sure can. This is my job. I should get this. I know this spiel. <laughs> so the Great Northwood landscape, as we like to call it, because we want to imagine it as a large area 
rather than just the fragments, was once an ancient woodland landscape. So 16th century, it was all joined up, this sprawling ancient landscape, which stretched from Deptford, which is just beneath the Thames in London, all the way down to Selhurst, which is in Croydon, a borough of London. And then from east to west, it's Streatham to Sydenham, or the other way around. So it's a really large area that, yeah, if you stood in the middle of Norwood, if you've ever been to South London, you would literally just see woodlands as far as the eye can see. So it's a magical place. It was really economically valuable. The tannins from the oak trees were used in the leather making industries. Timber was used for shipbuilding, coal making industry. So it was this booming economy and really, really valuable. But when the Industrial Revolution came around and the Enclosure Acts, bits of the land were partitioned off, privatised, sold off, built on, yada yada. So you no longer had this sprawling landscape. It was all fragmented. But fortunately, the Great Northwood landscape does live on in fragments, which are a mixture of parks, cemeteries, uh, sports grounds, railway embankments. And that's what makes up the Great Northwood landscape today. So in phase one of the project we managed 13 woodlands and now we've gone into phase two with the extra funding but we managed 22 woodlands so that was kind of like me and my manager were like scrambling to put this bid together to get extra funding and we were like what can we do and we were like right let's go from 13 to 22 sites and my manager was like does that sound good and I'm like yes the day we got the funding we were like this is amazing and then we dawned on us we were like oh my gosh we're managing 22 woodlands what have we done um <laughs> this major moment um, but it's been amazing because you get to work with so many different stakeholders community groups friends of groups councils so it's this great mixture of people working together meeting volunteers and people that have set up friends groups and just going into a space and going actually this looks like it could do some conservation I'll do it yeah so it's a great project for all sorts of people working together you've got stakeholders councils friends of groups and they all work together for this goal of restoring and improving the fragments that are left behind for people and for wildlife so between the fragments we do a lot of connecting and woodland creation as well so it's not just within those 22 woodland sites so it's a great project it's been going since 2017 and now we've got the extra funding to go to 2023 so we're putting together our community engagement program we have a festival every year and a bunch of other events which the community gets involved with and on top of that we do practical conservation volunteering so we've got a great group who comes out and nothing is too hard for them. We do a lot of invasive plant species removal, tree planting, dead hedging, path hedging, all of that kind of like hands-on stuff, which before I got into this job, I had no idea how to make build steps. And now I do. So it's really like multifaceted and it's, yeah, it's a really great role. Oh, wow. Sounds great. Sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> and just think of all those skills that you're learning as well along the way. <laughs> Exactly, I can build steps now, what? Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's my take home. After I finish this job, I'll be like, I can build steps, okay? <laughs> it's one for the CV. Exactly. So what's the worst invasive plant in London or in your area? Is it balsam? The worst, well, if you're talking Great Northwood landscape, yeah. and if any of my volunteers are listening to this, it's cherry laurel. Ah, uh, not laurel. Uh. Yeah, the good old laurel with its... Uh, toxicity in its leaves and all sorts so yeah when it's and it's always nicely planted on people's like gardens and I just kind of go along like ripping yeah. bits off <laughs> aggressively uh, but yeah that's that's our evil and rhododendron of course oh yeah so Chantelle I think it was last year you wrote an article breaking down barriers to nature for young black people could you talk a little bit about that because that was a, a rather good article and very insightful thank you very much yeah so that came about so it was the national true heritage fund who funded the first phase of the project 
when they approached uh, me to talk about it. Anjana, Dr. Anjana had done an article before and she is a geologist. So I sort of read her article, I was really inspired to just talk about my personal experience really, because throughout my kind of coming into the sector, my eyes just kind of got wider and wider at this problem with diversity in the sector and the barriers that are in place for people, black people accessing nature. I mean, you have this narrative that black people are the harder to reach groups and they're not interested in, in nature. So what's the point kind of thing? But I kind of stand as a testament to say that's completely not true. And having been in the sector, meeting so many people that are like me, you know, you've got groups like Flock Together, Black Girls Camping, Black Girls Hiking, who just disprove that theory completely. And what the issue is are are the barriers. So you've got a lot of gatekeeping. You've got a lot of, I would say, not understanding the deeper root of things. If anyone's ever been to therapy, you kind of, you have this thing where it's like you react to something and that's, if you just took the reaction as it was and not go to the deeper route, then you're not really getting to the, the problem. So there's a lot of deep-rooted cultural issues there that people don't understand. You know, people, my ancestors, when they came over, uh, the Windrush generation were forced into these concrete jungles, not into the leafy green areas, Surrey and the like. So that connection to nature, which is innate within our people, was cut off, you know, it was, your priorities completely changed. It wasn't about uh, foraging or appreciating nature. It was how I can, one, get through the day with racism at full force. Two, you know, how I've got mouths to feed. So it's like the, the priorities go down. So when people are kind of getting angry at people for not getting involved in things like climate marches and things like that, you have to look at the deeper issues. And a lot of these spaces that we go into, a lot of the people don't look like us. A lot of the volunteer groups that I lead are mainly all white. So for me, it was a lot of the times when I would sit in my lecture room and there, there were no black professors, there were hardly any other black people in the room. When I go into meetings, there's hardly any other black people in the room. And it's, it's, I think it's something that if you haven't experienced being the other, it's very hard to, to grasp. But you, you gravitate towards people who are like you. So when you don't see anyone in the nature documentaries, and, and David Attenborough, you know, is absolutely incredible, but it would have been so nice to see someone presenting a wildlife documentary who looked like me and that was completely missing and I didn't really realise that until I was older and I was like actually hang on I've had to kind of push through that and you know for a lot of people that's it's exhausting to keep doing that so it is with it with the people in power within the organisations to fix these issues and you will get and it's changing the tide is changing but it needs to be a lot quicker and it needs to be from higher levels down because you do get a lot of people on the ground a lot of project officers who are but then you will you'll look at the leadership and you'll be like, okay, hang on, there's an issue here. So that's that's where the problems lie. I find this really frustrating. Like, constantly, black conservationists and scientists are the ones answering this question, right, about the consequences of racism, which still which is still there. You know, the system is racism. The system is racist. Racism is not those individual racist words that people say or actions that happen. It's the full system, and it still exists in conservation. So... Whether people recognise it as racism or not is their choice, but if they're not recognising it, <laughs> they're denying reality. Because what what Chantel has just described is the definition of racism, a systemic level of racism where if you look if you do not look white, if you are not white, then there are barriers to what you can do in the sector. So I get really frustrated that white people are not it's it's a white people problem racism in as much as you are the ones responsible for reinforcing and supporting a system that still exists to this day so 
the the question like I'd like to see every CEO of every wildlife charity in this country and around the world if they're white answer answering the question about racism and barriers and what they are doing what actively they're doing like it's not enough to sit and rub your hands and say oh it's bad and oh we'll do something and and like you know throw a couple of voluntary initiatives someone's way it's not enough it's clearly not enough and let's just look at how we're doing in biodiversity conservation. Like, we're not nailing it. <laughs> so the existing prevailing situation, uh, which essentially is a form of white supremacy, is not succeeding in solving the problems at hand. And that's just even within the UK. Let's not even talk about international conservation and the sort of colonial approach that's been to conservation. But just in the UK, it's not worked. Something is wrong with what you're doing. And racism is absolutely part of that. It's absolutely part of not an array of voices, not an array of opportunities, not an array of, of perspectives and ideas, right? And um, like, look at the most effective community organizing there is uh, around any number of issues. Look at things like the Black Lives Matter campaign. Like, the climate movement needs to learn from those movements and needs to understand that racism is, is absolutely part of, of social, ju you know, social justice and climate justice are, are, and environmental justice are all wrapped up in one another. I think we're too long lots of white gatekeepers have been willing to say, oh, no, no, that's in the box over here. We need to focus on climate right now or environment right now because that's right in front of us. And yeah, don't worry, we'll, we'll get to the racism thing after that, though. But, you know, let's do the climate thing first. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And as a lot, of, a lot of people have observed, like, if I'm dealing with this nonsense every day, like, my focus isn't on the climate necessarily, even if I care about it because I, I'm dealing with nonsense. So... I get really, and I'm frustrated as well because this, you know, the conversation is definitely coming to quicker focus, as Chantel says, but not enough. Not, it's not happening fast enough. Not enough is being done. And this, like, cautious, conservative approach to it is not going to fix it. So, yeah, I, I feel frustrated by it. You know, I'm active within my, my organization trying to, to push the agenda as well because, yeah. I think it's something that white folk need to look at and, and get over the fragility of it as well, right? The uncomfortable feelings. You've got to hold it and sit with it. You know, I'm saying this as a, a white guy, a middle-class white guy. I, I am aware. I have to be aware. I'm, and, I, and I'm not always aware of all my privileges, right? I'm sure there's plenty of times I stumble and mess up and, you know, people are careful about how they ask, ask, ask questions and, and, you know, rightfully so about being sensitive and being careful. You know, you were careful even there, Neil, about how to, how to ask the question, right? But... We need to get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think every conservationist should read White Fragility, that book by Robin D'Angelo. It's a helpful book for you to read, to understand the perspective, to understand racism as a system, because so much of it applies to day-to-day -day work. Even if you think, oh, I'm an ecologist, what's the relevance of this? You will find rele the relevance of it. It'll, like, open your eyes up to it as a, as a white person that needs to understand the, the system to understand why people feel marginalized, frustrated, and why we are like the whitest sector behind farming, uh, the second whitest sector behind farming in this in this country. Yeah, that was when that came out. That was a shocking statistic, and then you thought about it and went, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> I mean, say so there's there's financial barriers. We all know that, but there is, there's other things going on as well, as as we're saying. I mean, one thing I did notice. For a lot of my colleagues are and, and, and I suppose I'm that situation as well 
part of it, the environment sector's badly paid. You've got to do the volunteering first, which a lot of people can't afford. And it's also, even when you, unless you get the really upper etchions, it's pretty badly paid. And most people, especially if you live in London or, or the southeast, you need a, a, a better paid partner to, to afford a house. You know, it's. But then, like I say, there's other factors. I mean, every time I. I post something about a, a flock together and or um, you know black birders or something like that. People go, well, what about if I set up a white birders club? But you know that'd be considered racist. Like, oh, do you want a white birders club? Go find a birding <laughs> club, any club. <laughs> I pay good money if you can find one that isn't ninety percent white at least. You know, and probably, well, it's right. not quite so bad with the um, the male female ratios now. But I have no, you know, the environmental sectors starting starting to address that a little bit more i think i see a lot more female rangers and and stuff like that but so i like to think things are going in the right direction but as you say there's a lot more work to do from from you know and again i'm saying this as a white male middle-aged now <laughs> male myself so as, as rory says I, I try to be aware of these things but every so often you get a bit of a wake-up call on some of these things when someone mentions something and it is uncomfortable like you say but we've got to just suck it up really <laughs> to get on with it absolutely and I think it's very important to bring it into these spaces where you know you will get a lot of people I had after I was on spring watch there are a few comments on twitter oh. it's always twitter isn't it um, and it's like why did she have to mention she was black and blah blah yeah. blah and it's like there is no time when it's not a good time to address racism you know it's like it's within everything I don't get to to shut my eyes and pretend it's not there so why should you and you might want to enjoy your BBC program and so do I but actually I've got this issue knocking on my door and and it's not just my issue so yeah I think it's really important that totally like society's reminding you every day what the color of your skin is and in whatever way even if race is a social construct and like you know patently not a biological thing it, it it's happening it's there it's going on and it's like these people are like you know i'm is it bad if i set up white partners week or white partners club whatever it's like are you aware of history this is preposterous it's preposterous <laughs> like this false equivalence thing is like the most base argument in the world and it, it doesn't any scrutiny on it it doesn't stand up to it it's like you say neil just go and join a burning group and you will find overwhelmingly it's it's white. You don't need to set up a special one. It's already there. So oh God. I'd say I'd say actually think- and, and Neil, you probably kind of I don't know how much because I, I I see quite a lot in terms of photography groups, because I do a lot of talks to photography groups as well, albeit my stuff's all wildlife based. Mm. I'd say photography groups are pretty much the same. Oh yeah. Oh the bird photography. I'm, I'm desperately trying to think if I've seen someone that isn't white and older than me <laughs> in bird photography. Nature photography generally is well, it's more diverse, but that's from a very low bar. And again, there's another barrier there. Mm. You've got to be able to afford even basic camera gear. If you can't afford right. your rent, you ain't going to get any blue camera gear, are you? It's, it's still predominantly male and white. Oh, yeah. Definitely. For sure. That's what you said about the gender balance, sort of perhaps slightly starting to tip there, Neil. I mean, I think that tells you how slowly we're moving. Like, when did the feminist movement begin? Yeah. When were these conversations happening? I like, know. <laughs> is this really how long it's taken us to get there? Like, you know when, like, mm. <laughs> businesses are doing things faster than a movement that should be at the forefront, right? Like, many of our organizations... Like the RSPB started as a campaigning organization that existed, and it was set up by women who were part of the suffragette movement, who were there to stop the trade in, in feathers and, and hats and in fashion... 
that was a radical movement. That, at the time, that was a radical notion that, a, that women would set up a group to campaign for something in the political sphere. And they had to get men to do various things because at the time women couldn't vote. Like, that, that was a radical notion. And I think, you know, organize, in the environmental and con- conservation sector, we need to recapture those radical roots and remember what it was about and like I say learn from movements like the Black Lives Matter movement which is has has been about how you do movement building how you get people working together and engaged and pushing towards a, a common goal and achieving things as well so uh, you know and when you look at what we're achieving in the conservation space you know I'm not trying to be depressing here but we're like we're fighting a pretty strong tide uh, things are think as I say things have not gone to plan so we need to turn that around and we need the biggest possible team to do it so why would you not want more people on your team exactly that's i've, I've said that to other people they said well if they're not interested it's not my problem i said no it is because you know we're up against some powerful business interests and unless you've got everyone behind it you're not going to get anywhere and that means everyone not just you know people you want to be behind it you gotta get everyone behind it or as many as possible and Chantel have you come across the I think it's a young London birders group have you come across them guys yeah I've heard of them yeah yeah now that that's a source of hope because that is a diverse group of people and they're all lovely but I was chatting to one of those I have brought up on the podcast before one of them turned up at a twitch and a certain notorious twitcher that Rory will know the name of, that notorious one, turned around and told and said to his face, "Ah, oh, don't get many people like you here." Wow. Um, but he's he's notorious for having certain attitudes, like splitting the human race like goals and stuff. But yes, let's not go into that because he's just. But there is there's there's a prevailing attitude of that in. Mm. I wouldn't say the majority of birders are or anything like that, but there is definitely an element of that in there and. Some prominent birders deny it's there as well, and which doesn't These help, are the same people but... that will gaslight folk who set up things like Flock Together and say, oh, exactly. oh you know, you're set, you setting up oh, your own group, or oh, can I set up a white birders group? Mm. It's like, come off it. You shouldn't have it always. Like, make people feel unwelcome and say ridiculous, racist and sensitive things at Twitch <laughs> and then tell them that, that they can't set up a safe space where they're comfortable and not feeling put upon by people being unpleasant to them i mean it's just like mm. yeah it's <sighs> it's intense i think some of it comes from misunderstanding like it and there's a lot in the press that need to answer for this as well i think and dodgy facebook groups and stuff they, you know so black life matters people going well all lives matter although until it's refugees mm. in the channel but let's not go into that and then the same again with white privilege people go well i'm not very well off and i'm white but it's like that's not what it means you need to just just take five minutes and just find out what it means it's not hard Mm -hmm. you know go there's plenty of stuff out there just stay off certain papers (laughs) we won't mention and stuff it's you know i I won't pretend to be an expert on the issues but it takes doesn't take long to read an article that someone's written or something just to get an idea John Amici did a four, like a, you know, the ex NBA basketball player John Amici mm-hmm. did a four minute video for um, BBC Bite Size for kids about mm-hmm. what privilege is. And that is what I send to any any idiot that starts an argument about it. I'm like, just mm-hmm. watch this. 
it's a video for children. You should be able to understand it. <laughs> um, <laughs> might be, uh, yeah. You might be overestimating them there. But, do you know what? It's a simple explainer. And he, he talks about those specific issues, you know, in relation, you know, to, he uses a personal example for it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there we that's a nice that's a nice deep heavy breath. heavy deep issue deep breath. <laughs> I think that's a podcast on its own isn't it that one <laughs> it might well be actually when I've edited it <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end on something a bit more um, what's the word cheerful <laughs> upbeat <laughs> Pause. upbeat that's the word I look for we'll end on something a bit more upbeat um, well, also, well, also, it's upbeat, right? I mean, let's also talk, you know, Chantel, someone like Chantel yeah. is such an inspiration and in what you were saying, Chantel, about representation is so important. I think, like, yeah. someone like you is just, like, just absolutely magic. It's, like, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. So that, I mean, uh, that, there's obviously a whole conversation there that, that we went into, but actually someone, a little kid seeing Chantel on their TV and seeing her presenting a nature program and talking about teeny tiny creatures and holding a hedgehog and crying, like all that stuff is, <laughs> that's so wonderful. And, you know, everything that, that Chantel was saying earlier about um, representation on the show and, you know, kids being able to see themselves on the TV. It's not the whole picture, right? That's, it's not, it's not of itself going to dismantle racism, but, you know, listen to somebody's personal experience of, of what they felt like when they were younger and now, now you're it, Chantel. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, that is what does make my heart like kind of glow. And on those days where like filming or whatever is, is tough, it's like actually I'm doing this for little me because I would have loved to have seen myself. So yeah. And, it, and uh, the, the contributors as well, you know, like Darwood Qureshi, um, seeing someone who's totally different, who's just authentically themselves... It's just beautiful, and someone who looks different. Yeah. Darwood's excellent. I, I follow Dar. I've been following Darwood for a good year or so. They're brilliant. Absolutely. All right. So we'll finish on a proper upbeat, uh, fully upbeat uh, question. Uh, what is the best wildlife encounter you've ever had? <laughs> Deep breath. So they're both both scolding for time, looking at each other here. I know okay. choosing one's difficult, but Shanta, yeah. you that was a confident okay. I'm okay. going to pull over which one I'm okay. going to choose. <laughs> I'm going to go for, um, I was really lucky in that I got my first, first and only, um, diving qualification in the Caribbean, Jamaica. And whilst we were doing one of the diving practice runs, the instructor was literally going, she was pointing and going, look, look, look. And I was just like in this world of like magic anyway. She was going, look. I looked and a green turtle literally just like swam by, looked at us and then swam off. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can cry <laughs> underwater. This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that was the pinnacle. I was like, wow, I've just seen a green I turtle. I think any I wildlife encounter that makes you cry is just... Yeah, definitely up there. And I'm just going to say this now. I, I'm with you, Chantal. You know, that there have been numerous moments where I have cried at various wildlife encounters or, or seeing something. And, you know, I think that that just shows how much it actually means to you. Absolutely. I cry at the drop of a hat, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I, I do as well. But <laughs> beside the point, I mean, I, I saw I got to see an Iberian lynx in the wild a couple of years ago. And the moment this thing appeared, like my cameras are all set, I've got two cameras set, I'm ready to take pictures of it. I was just sitting in the tent, blubbing my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, it literally would be me. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I think I have more of the. Um, I was going to say I'm more so, British and don't cry, but actually it's more like the five-year-old reaction. Like when I first saw my first tadpole shrimps, I was like, <gasps> <laughs> which was uh, rather cool. When we saw Indri in the wild in Madagascar, we were standing underneath them and they were singing. And it's just this, this, when they sing, it goes completely through. You you feel it. You hear it, but you feel it as well. And I was just standing there bawling my eyes out. It's a, it, it's a good job that my husband had already proposed and I'd said yes. And that was it. He, that was it. He had to part with me for the rest of his life. Because at that point, I was standing under this tree with an injury above my head, bawling my eyes out. And he was thinking, she didn't react this emotional when I proposed. <laughs> do, do you know what? I didn't. I, I honestly, honest God, I did not even know that he'd got down on one knee um, behind me because he proposed when we were in Madagascar. And I was so, um, like, just in, enthralled and engrossed in these varosafarkas that were in the trees. And there was this little baby playing in the trees. And I was just completely focused. All my attention was on them. He was like, can I have your attention? Oh. It's funny to say that because an, an injury jumping around is <laughs> exactly how I was acting when I saw my first tadpole shrimp. So. <laughs> so I, I don't think I even actually officially said yes when he proposed. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm watching injury. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> yeah. We, we, yeah, yeah, no. We've been married nine years this April. Okay, there you go. Oh. Confirmed. So, so we, we've um, we've stalled for time. Yeah, Marie. you have, oh. and I don't I don't know that I'm any closer. <laughs> to be you honest, can go with what more than one if if you really can't pick. Do you know what? Like a hundred of them. Like I'm gonna like I'm gonna cheat and kind of have an overall experience. So when I finished, I mentioned I worked in Kelvin Grove Museum earlier, and I did that job for near enough two years. I was pretty burnt out at the end of it because it was you know it's a full on job. A lot of people come into the museum, like, you know, staying enthusiastic for sort of six hours a day. I'm a naturally enthusiastic person, but, um, God, it was, that's quite draining. So after a couple of years of that job, I was like, oh, I'm pretty done. And was also feeling like I want to get back to sort of why I got into conservation and like, you know, seeing some nature. And at the time, the Royal Society for Wildlife Trust were doing, actually what used to be the Royal Society for Wildlife Trust, but then latterly came into the Cadbury family. So I don't know if you know this, but the Cad- so the Cadbury family were a lot to do with the Royal Society for Wildlife Trust, as in the chocolate Cadbury people. Do I think we're Quakers? Is that right? I think they helped like in- invent the weekend as well, right? Like basically, Ooh. yeah, weekend, they were a big part of the trade union movement. Pretty cool. Uh, and also chocolate obs, but <laughs> major sidetrack. <laughs> <laughs> they provided some... One of the Cabaret family, James Cabaret, used to be involved in helping support volunteers to go out to a reed island in the Seychelles. So they would cover, help cover some of your flight costs. You could apply for a, a sort of bursary to cover your flight costs to get to the Seychelles. This tiny island, you know, in the Granitic Seychelles, it's like a mile long and half a mile wide, covered in seabirds and bats and all sorts of creatures. And I was like, I'd love to do that. And I could basically go, I was renting a place at the time, so I could go for three months. It would be rent free. Um, a lot of your food was like off the island or, or out the sea. I did eat fish at the time. Sorry, fish. And yeah, you could get a bit of a bursary to do it. So I thought this is like volunteering in an amazing place in the tropics at, you know, with loads of endemism and interesting island wildlife. And it's not going to cost me loads. I'm I'm burnt out. So I'm going to go and do this or hope to do it. So I applied, got offered the bursary, got my flights paid for, went out there and volunteered for three months. And like it was an utterly incredible experience the whole thing so they've got seychelles magpie robins there these like beautiful 
I don't know if they're either, I don't think they're either in the Robin family or Corvid family. They're definitely not in the Corvid family, but like a, they look a bit like a bigger Robin. They're black and white. They sing beautifully. So at the end of every day, the overlapping territories, they'd all come to the edge of the territory and they all stick their chests out and do these big loops with their head and the whole like a whole gang like en masse singing at the other gang. It's like incredible. One of the rarest birds in the world at the time was like 180. And on the island, there was like, I don't know, 20 odds. So it was like, this is one of the rarest birds in the world. It's like there. It's like right in front of you. But snorkeling off there was amazing. So there's turtles on the beach. And it's like, oh, turtles, amazing. And like similar experience to Chantel being in the water with the turtle for the first time was like, <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> you're right there. What? And see like nurse sharks and stuff. Oh, but the one particular day I went snorkeling right along to the sort of edge of the top of the island. And if you think about it too much, it's a bit like, oh, this is crazy. Like this is a tiny island archipelago in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And if I just get swept away, that, that'd be it. <laughs> it's like you're just gone. Uh, anyway, I was out there on my own, completely irresponsibly, um, snorkeling to the edge of the reef. And there wasn't much doing. I wasn't seeing much that day. There was no turtles around. I was like, oh, this isn't great. I'm just going to turn back. And I was finning my way back along to the sort of main section of the reef. And I could feel, you know, when you feel something looking at you, I was like, I'm being looked at. And looked to my side. It's not the biggest shark, but it's the grey reef shark, which is like, it was a bit, it matched me lengthwise. It was a good sized shark. And I had, you know, I love sharks. I love marine creatures. But I had that moment of like, whoa, that's a, that's a big predator right there. <laughs> so I'm looking over at this shark. God, right, keep your, keep your cool, keep your cool, go alongside. And this thing's like right next to me. And I thought, I'm good. I'd like to get a closer look. I wonder if it'll let me get a bit closer. So I started fitting a bit closer. And it just did that shark thing. It just went like ping, like changed direction and just went like disappeared into the blue. I was like, wow. Like that moment of like this creature is so much better equipped for this environment than me with my fins like battering through the water. And I went a bit further up and the shark came back. And you know what they say when sharks get curious, it's like you should think about leaving the water. So I was like, okay he's interested it came back and it was like hello what's happening came a bit closer this time i was like right i'm gonna get back to the beach real quickly so yeah i went i went back in at that point but it was that it was that moment and i always feel it in the water of like when you when you see marine life around you especially sharks which are just like designed for speed that was just like yeah and it gave me a, a proper shiver down the spine moment as well there was a little bit of like mild peril in there as well thrown in the mix <laughs> <laughs> get the adrenaline going yeah I don't think there's any records of grey sharks ever attacking humans but in my mind there was a sort of you know great white moment happening there <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah that's it it's the first time for everything thanks to my careful observation <laughs> skills I avoided being the first grey yeah. shark fatality there we go <laughs> I think that there is something I think when when you see a, when you're in the water and you see a shark and it's there you know I'm not talking like your cage diving web but you're in the ocean and, and there's the shark and you're looking at each other that there, there, there is something isn't there? there there's there's this feeling that you get I, I don't know I, it's quite hard to describe but I think once you've once you felt it you you definitely know yeah it's like oh it's like whoa it's a proper like whoa feeling 
You must have seen sharks in Jamaica, right? I didn't. I didn't see a shark, no. So now I'm like, I need, I want this feeling. What is this feeling? So I, yeah. I spent, I was lucky I spent a lot of summers in the Cayman Islands because my dad was, was working over there. And so I, I learned to dive. And I love scuba diving because it's, it's that feeling of being completely free and at peace. And yeah, it's just amazing. And we were doing a say, our kind of safety stop before going back onto the boat and we're there just on the line doing our safety spot you know just you've got to do your safety spots safety stop and you you know you're looking at your fins and you're pulling stupid faces at each other trying you know amuse yourself for your, your five minutes or whatever and then someone actually was actually trying to get our attention because this uh, black tip reef shark was checking us out while we're doing our safety stop <laughs> It was just swimming around us, and we're just like looking at our feet and pulling faces at each other and everything. But then it was just wow. like when we stopped, we were looking at it. It was like, wow, that, that's that's like a real life shark, and it's there, a few feet away from us, and it's watching us. Mm. <laughs> yeah, scuba diving is like is definitely such an experience because you are at the mercy of another of another habitat where you literally you're not the best swimmer mm. you know you're not the best equipped like you said Rory so it, it is that kind of like half feeling quite endangered and then half being in complete awe and wonder it's a, an amazing feeling it's, it's relaxing as well mm. I, don't, I don't know if you find it I find yeah. it completely relaxing like yeah. I, I feel so at home in the water I really do it's yeah there's just something about it just and that that peacefulness because it's just you there isn't all the other noise and everything that you have from day-to-day life it's just that silence yeah Mm. yeah perhaps not in the Thames though (laughs) no and and to be fair if I have to dive in anything other than a a wetsuit it's not happening I'm not a cold water diver (laughs) no those dry suits are not fun (laughs) (laughs) give me Caribbean any day that would be lovely. <laughs> meeting oh. <laughs> yeah. well I think that's a good place to stop at <laughs> a nice Caribbean warm water so well what can I say thank you so much for coming on guys I think we may have broken the Nick Baker set record for longest episode <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank gosh. you thank you so much it's been it's been absolutely kind of joy and pleasure to have you both on and chat Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks, Vic. Lovely to meet you. And yeah, thank you for having us. All right. Total Cheers. pleasure. Cheers. Thank All you. Right. Total you pleasure to be then. here. See you soon. All right, guys. Well, that's it from us. Uh, see you in the next episode. Yeah, take Bye care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.